Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, inspiration, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, our uh, focus today will be on the treatment of migraine headaches. But uh, the truth is this topic really touches on the issue of chronic disease management and optimizing medical treatment. Uh, and, and even more than that, what we're going to hear today, uh, to my mind, is so unique and the approach is so remarkably fresh and simple and ingenious that I'm not really sure how to label it. There are so many lessons in this story. And so we're really uh, fortunate to have a guest on our show, George McClendon. And before I introduce George, I do want to say in full transparency that George is a close colleague of mine, and I've been so enthusiastic about this work that we've actually been collaborating over the past few months to deploy it in some of the uh, patient and uh, employee populations that uh, we work with. So let me just tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. McClendon. Uh, George is, uh, is the founder of, uh, of a company and chairman of the board of Sensorex, whose first product is this migraine app, MigraineX, for patients and uh, their providers who are dealing with severe headaches and migraines. Um, this app and others that are being developed at Sensorex use patient-generated health data to assist providers in assessing patients' condition and optimizing treatment. Now, uh, before uh, all of this, George uh, really at this point is the Vice President for Therapeutic Research and Development at the Carolinas Healthcare System. Prior to coming to Carolinas, he served as the Howard Hughes Provost and Professor of Chemistry at Rice University. Prior to that, he was Dean of Arts and Sciences and Professor of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Duke University, as well as a faculty member of their cancer center at the medical school at Duke. And prior to that, he served as the chair of the Department of Chemistry at Princeton University. Uh, he has a tremendous breadth of research and, uh, and work and a portfolio that's led to the founding of several companies, including Tetralogic and Seamtrax and LabSite. He is a founding co-director of TMCX, the largest accelerator for biomedical startups, and serves on advisory and governing boards for several early-stage life sciences companies. Uh, Dr. McClendon has published over 200 research papers in chemistry, physics, and biology, and he holds multiple patents. Now, George, I, I have to say this. You and I have worked closely for, for quite some time, for two, three years, and um, I never actually read through your uh, your CV. It It is impressive, and the thing is, you're such a nice guy, so down-to-earth, so humble. I, I would never have actually known these details had I read them. How are you today, George? Um. You know, I think I'm great, but you'll get a range of opinions on this. <laughs> no, you're, it's really, I have to say, if, uh, I, it's been a while since I've read such an impressive uh, resume. And uh, that, that's very nice of you, Seth. That's, it's true. So, George, I'm, I'm really excited to, to speak today about this, um, you know, this app. And every time I speak to you, I learn something more about it. But let's just start at the beginning. And what, um, you know, you've got this broad portfolio of, of research and development of, uh, of applications and products, um, in healthcare. Um, what, what made you focus on migraine headaches? What, what brought you to that one? So that's a good question, Zev, and thanks for asking it. I was, um, 
working early on in helping build out with uh, a great team uh, at the Texas Medical Center, this TMC accelerator, especially Bill, who was sort of my partner in crime, and uh, had engaged with a young woman as a potential consultant who had a lot of experience working with pharma marketing and other things that would be valuable to us. Her name was Shannon. And uh, Shannon would be available sometimes and unavailable other times. And it wasn't entirely obvious what was going on until she shared that she suffered from very severe chronic migraines. And when she had a headache, she was knocked out in a dark room for a day. Uh, and it seemed like an incredible loss of extraordinary human talent uh, to lose her um, to lose her talent. So I thought, well, you know, how hard can it be to help people get the better diagnosis and treatment that they need? And that started a, a an odd journey because the answer. Is if it were that easy, people would already be getting it. So one of the challenges that I learned about was that in order for a physician to properly diagnose and treat uh, more than occasional episodic migraine, uh, the first thing that they need to know is simply how many headaches do you suffer a month? And people are really bad at remembering the severity of their disease. I think for many of us, we're wired to sort of minimize that um, that degree of severity. So we just don't remember it. And that makes patient recall as any, uh, as you would know, as a, as a frontline physician, it makes patient recall incredibly unreliable as a basis for diagnosis. And in pain-related things like migraine, it's the only thing you have. So the first thing we realized was that we needed to give people some way of recording in real time the frequency of their headaches, the severity of them, and their response, if any, to medication. And in principle, you could do that with a paper diary, and people have tried that for decades, and it simply doesn't work. People won't drag their diaries around with them. If they don't have them with them, they will forget. Uh, so what made this timely was the ubiquity of smartphones that enable, with a well-designed user interface, enable patients to enter, I'm having a headache, here's the severity, and here's the medication that I'm taking. And they can enter all that with three screen touches in about 15 seconds. Uh, being able to create that user interface made all the difference in the world. That it, it turns out if you can do something in 30 seconds or less, people will absolutely do it as a way of improving their health. If it takes them more than a minute, they absolutely won't. And so that's, that's sort of the background for how I became interested in this and the earliest stages of the journey along that process 
along the way, we learned a lot of other things that I'm happy to share that were made possible by ubiquitous smartphone technology uh, that enables the information to be better shared with providers, that enables the uh, migraineur to better uh, keep track of, of the triggers that for most chronic disease that present episodically, there's something that triggers it. Mm -hmm. And if you can't even remember when you have a headache, trying to guess what triggered that headache is impossible for most people. And so we, we became very interested also in not only recording the incident, but, but keeping track of all those triggers. That's sort of a long answer to a short question. No, it's good. So maybe, um, you know, you talked about your um, your colleague and uh, who who would experience these headaches. Can you talk a little bit more about? I mean, for you know, for you and your team to spend so much time on it, and uh, you know, there must be a market need out there. There must be a, a large, you know, this must be a, a significant problem, and you know, from a, from an employer perspective or just in the public. And so, do you have any numbers on hand in terms of? How, you know, how big a problem this, this is for, you know, in, sure. in the domain of patients and populations? Yeah, thanks, Ev. Uh, by many reckonings, uh, severe headache slash migraine is the most common chronic disease in the United States. It affects uh, the best estimates are 40 million people. It's in the United States alone over a billion worldwide. Uh, it is um, differentially experienced by women, a little more than two and a half uh, to one women to men. Uh, it is heritable, but with very complex inheritance. Uh, it is uh, subject, as I alluded to, to many different triggers. Um, for some people, it can be a particular kind of light. For others, it can be a change in the weather. For others, it can be particular uh, sound frequencies or decibel levels of sound. For others, it can be food. So that there's a wide variety of um, things that can lead to headache onset. And the um, And the implications for any individual vary widely. Uh, for some migraineurs, uh, which is sort of a generic term for those who suffer from these uh, kinds of headaches, uh, they may only get one headache a month. It may be associated with a menstrual period. It may be very unpleasant. And they've learned, despite its unpleasantness, to deal with it so it's not disabling. For others, uh, their lives are just extraordinarily difficult, and it leads to a loss of work productivity. It leads to a loss of uh, family and social engagement. Uh, and um, so the, the estimates for the social costs are in tens of billions of dollars mm -hmm. uh, for uh the combination of medical expenses and lost productivity 
associated with this very common chronic disease. Mm -hmm. And and George, as I was doing some research to prep for our conversation, um, a couple of of numbers I came across in terms of the costs of uh, of uh, migraine, and you mentioned this that the cost to employers in the U.S. alone is in the tens of billions of dollars uh, for for an individual who has migraines versus an individual that doesn't. The cost of overall Medicare is more than doubled, um, and uh, without you know that association of migraines and. You know, you mentioned, uh, I think it was, it was about 40 million or so sufferers of migraine in the U.S. And, um, there, that translates into, at least according to what I, what I saw, about 4 million, uh, ED visits a year with an average cost of over $1,500. And one can imagine people coming with migraines are getting all kinds of tests and, and other treatments in the ED. So that, right. so that, that's a, pretty serious expense that's borne not only by individuals and families, but also by the payers uh, and employers that are, are uh, supplementing the cost of care for their employees. So it's, it's a pretty, it, it definitely ranks up there. I know in, in my experience working with employers, uh, it, it's definitely, it may not be the, the first or second um, or maybe even third, but it's definitely up there in terms of uh, the issues that um, employers are grappling with. And I think to your point, um, as you mentioned with your colleague, you may come to work, um, but you're not going to be working very effectively. And for any of us who've had headaches and for any of us who've had migraines, we know exactly what that means because it's not just the headache and the pain is enough, but it's the dizziness, it's the nausea, it's the uh, sensitivity to light and uh, so you can tell i've had i've had a migraine or two in my lifetime and um right you know it, it's really it's really terrible i mean you're you're shot for hours because that nausea and dizziness doesn't go away even if the pain of the headache goes away you're still left with the sensitivity to light the sensitivity to sound all that sort of stuff so it, it does have a tremendous impact i think on on the issue of what uh what in the business we call not just uh, absenteeism but also presenteeism that is not not being very productive right so um it, it seems like you've you know you came at it through a colleague but um in some ways you you actually you know, came at it through the perspective of an employer as well, uh, in terms of you know bearing not just the the suffering of your own colleagues and employees, but also the cost of that. Right. So, so I want to I I want to you 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 sort of talked about how you develop this approach, and I'm going to come back because I do I do want to dissect that a bit more because it, it is um, the simplicity of how you put to, this together um, is just to me just absolutely fascinating. I, I remember when you first told me about this idea and I, I, I sort of, I don't know, I don't think I laughed because I would never laugh at you, but I, I just, I, I said to him, it can't be that simple. I mean, we've been, you know, people have been working on headaches and migraine headaches and there are institutes all over the world uh, and there are experts who devote their lives to this. And you're going to come along with three or four questions that you're going to put on an app that takes a few seconds to answer. And somehow that's going to change things. And it just, it seemed too simple. And I, I want to, I want to actually unpack how you came to that. But before we dive into that, uh, I just want you to, to, to take me through. If I were a patient with migraine and I'm an employee or a patient, um, how, how would this work if I'm in, uh, you know, I, I go, I download the app and then I use it and I go see my doctor. Could you take me through like a month or, or just how would this look? How does this thing work? Okay. Well, to start with, um, 
One of the bedrock principles is it's free for patients and it's free for providers. Um, so you go to Google Play or the or the iOS App Store and you download MIGRNX. Uh, it's spelled funny on purpose because that makes it easier to protect. Uh, and it takes you a few, you know, it takes a minute or two to download. Then we need some background information um, so that your provider has optimal information about you. And all of that is held HIPAA protected. So when you download, you're given a unique identifier that is undecodable. So once we take you off to the Amazon cloud, your provider knows who you are and you know who you are and nobody else does. So all of the, all of the information at that point is completely uh, protected. We do ask for the sake of the 40 million others who have this challenge that uh, we be allowed to um, look at population level data. So you're not identified in any way, but we can keep track of, of, um, of large trends. And uh, so we started with, with something that was honestly much more complicated. And we started with the idea of really helping people identify their triggers because Zev, you went through a, a nice laundry list of some of those things, light, sound, weather, et cetera. Uh, and we realized that instead of you trying to remember these, that if we unlocked all the sensors in your phone, it could measure all of the odes in one second. Uh, and for free, you'd get things like pollutant levels and pollen levels and other things that are linked to your, to the GPS coordinate of where you are at that moment. And so we can do deep analytics on those with machine learning so that over multiple, uh, headache cycles, we can start to help you identify what some of your most likely triggers are. Uh, and that gives you an opportunity to create feedback for yourself. Um, that all by itself can start to reduce your stress. And since stress is one of the biggest triggers in migraines and actually several other very common chronic diseases, anything you do that can reduce stress does reduce the likelihood of a, of a secondary occurrence. Mm -hmm. and, and George, I just want to, yeah, I just want to say, and, and what's also being recorded automatically is date and time. Do you have a stamp on it? So you, so, and that's another piece of yep. the picture as, as this data is being recorded that can give you a sense of patterns of, you know, potentially what day of the week, what time of the right. day. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, there's a funny anecdote about that or funny to me <laughs> anyway, which is that, um, we work closely with some of the leading headache specialists in the country, um, to make sure that that as we're developing this, we're doing the research that underlies uh, the things that we're trying to learn. So one of those folks is is uh, um, a neurologist, 
Dr. Richard Lipton at Einstein. And I talked to him about the, the incidence of, of headaches on different days. And he said, well, you know, there's a lot of work from pharma done back in the days of paper diaries that showed that headaches occur most commonly on Saturdays and Sundays. And I said, wow, that seems really weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we were, we were building our patient base. We were doing IRB controlled clinical trials. We were getting information on thousands and thousands of headaches. And we started looking at the diurnal patterns. And it turns out that hump day, Wednesday, is also headache day. That's not terribly surprising for people mm -hmm. that work, right? Your stress builds up over the week. And as the weekend comes, your stress goes down and your headaches drop way off. So what it's true for much of, of anecdotal medical research that it's not what you don't know that's a problem. It's what you know that actually isn't right. And so the idea that headaches occurred most commonly Saturdays and Sundays is there's no mm -hmm. way that's true. To less than one hundredth of one percent, it is we are certain that the pattern that we see is it would be four sigma away from from the pattern that we see. So what was different? Well, it turns out what was different was that people had their paper diaries with them on Saturdays mm -hmm. and Sundays. And so they faithfully recorded those headaches. They didn't necessarily have them with them at work. And so they forgot right, to right. record those crazy? headaches. So, so having things available in real time turns out to be tremendously valuable if you're trying to understand the patterns and how to modify them. Uh, and because we now have a really large database, uh, I think we can say with confidence, I don't know, I only know of, of the published databases. Among published databases, we're about the biggest out there. But I can say with absolute confidence that for a clinically integrated database, we are by far wow. the biggest. Because uh, the the hard thing was not developing an app. The hard thing was developing one that was patient friendly enough that that more than 80 percent would use it mm -hmm. for more than a year, which in terms of stickiness is very unusual in medical uh, smartphone applications that that provided actionable data to physicians in a way that they could use it. And the hardest thing was building them to workflow, which means you have to fully integrate it with an electronic medical record so that the physician can look at it when they need to look at it in real time so that they can make appropriate mm -hmm. changes in care for patients. And if you can do those things, then we have found that you can get dramatic changes across large populations uh, in headache frequency, severity, and probably most important in patient self-reported quality of life. Quality of life for these patients who've used this thing for nine months, which is almost all of them, uh, 
increases by over 30%. Wow. And that's, uh, that's, that's the thing that I actually feel mm-hmm. best about. Uh, the presenteeism that you alluded to drops dramatically. Uh, the number of headaches drops significantly. Uh, and one thing that sounds like a small thing, but feels like a big thing to me is that their quality of life outside of work mm-hmm. skyrockets. Um, I'll, uh, I'll share a story of one patient who is a friend of mine. Uh, I'll call her Sally, although that's not her name. Uh, for the sake of patient confidentiality. And, um, she, uh, she came to me when she learned that I was, uh, very interested in migraine headaches and said, you know, I've had these headaches for over 20 years and have not been able to get any, uh, improvement in care. So at Carolina's Healthcare, where both Zev and I work, uh, we have several headache specialists and are in the process actually of establishing a headache center of excellence to deal with the 100,000 patients we have in our system with a migraine diagnosis. So, uh, so I referred her to a physician that I think extraordinarily highly of, Dr. Russ Bodner. And he asked her the standard question, which is, well, Sally, how many headaches a month do you have? And she said, well, I have three, maybe four, but they're really bad. Uh, that was inconsistent with his <laughs> clinical experience. But he said, well, okay, fine. I need you to download this app, and I need you to rigorously record every headache do not decide whether it's a migraine or not. Just record every one. So she shows up with all the data neatly prepared a month later. And it turns out she doesn't have three. She has 19. So it clinically, that meant she had a completely different diagnosis, something called chronic migraine. Uh, and that requires for effective management, uh, a preventative medication, not an abortive one. And so it was no surprise that her headaches weren't getting better. She, she was unable to give her previous providers the information that they needed to be able to make a proper diagnosis and treatment plan. Armed with that information, then Dr. Bodner was able to develop a treatment plan for her. And I saw her recently. She's down to one headache per month (laughs) from 19. And her life is completely different. Uh, Her husband said, yeah, she actually talks to me when she comes home. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, I said, well, this is great that, that things are, uh, better for you and you know i'm pleased for you and she had the most amazing response which is this was never about me i started getting these headaches when i'm when i was 11 and i have had them for over 20 years she didn't 
tell me exactly how many years because I could have calculated her age. Uh, but she said, uh, but I've dealt. Uh, she's a very successful attorney. She has a lovely family. She's an amazing human being. Uh, she said, my daughter just turned 11 and she's starting to get them. And so I thought if I could find something that would help me, I would have confidence that we could help her. And so that to me was an extraordinary story from an extraordinary person and is really why we're doing this, right? Yeah, we can save payers a lot of money and, uh, yeah, we can make the healthcare system better and, yeah, the people who invested in this technology will hopefully make a lot of money. I don't really care because I've given away <laughs> most of my ownership. But uh, but I care a lot about people like Sally and her daughter and the ability to, uh, if her daughter doesn't have to go through the same 20 years of hell that she's had to go through, that's that's a huge thing. So, so George, so you've, you've seen, uh, this sort of remarkable result in terms of, you mentioned two things, obviously. One is the reduction in headaches. And the second is the, uh, impressive improvement in quality of life. And, you know, for anyone with headaches or anyone who, who is, you know, a uh, family member or colleague of someone with headaches, this is really, uh, important stuff. What, how does an app that tracks your symptoms and, uh, you know, how does that, how do you go from an app that tracks a few symptoms to getting, uh, these sorts of improvements? Could, could you, could you sort of make that connection for us? Only partially, uh, because we're still figuring that out. Hmm. Uh, so the, the first part is actually easy. So you track the symptoms. Uh, at the end of a month, your record, uh, which is sitting in uh, a HIPAA-protected cloud, uh, can be automatically downloaded to the EMR of the uh, physician that is providing your care. And so then they, could, they can review it. And if they see something as dramatic as, gee, We've been treating you for three headaches when you have 19. Then they can start, uh, they can use standard of care guidelines and start providing, uh, appropriate, uh, preventative medications. That's what made the difference for Sally. She was, she failed one preventative and the second one was magical for her and basically resolved her symptoms. Wait, and so George, just wait a so, so what percentage of migrant sufferers and what percentage is, is their self-reported, uh, symptoms of frequency and severity? What percentage is actually incorrect? What percentage are they under reporting? In the clinical trial that we ran, we found that more than two thirds of the patients had no idea of what their symptoms were. About 15% were over reporting them. And about 50% were under-reporting them. Mm -hmm. So the number who had it right was really small. Wow. Uh, and the under-reporting is the, is where the biggest challenge comes because they're being under-treated. And migraine, like 
some other neurological uh, disorders is a progressive disease. So if it's not properly treated, it can get worse over time. And it can be improperly treated by undertreating it. And it actually also can be improperly treated by overtreating it. So if, for example, you took a, if you had 12 headaches a month and you took a triptan every time you had a headache, you'll start to get rebound headaches, uh, which can be worse than the, than the thing that they're, re, that they're trying to cure. So, uh, so getting proper diagnosis is really a key. So, so this is, so, so George, let me, I mean, to me, this is, you know, just one of the kind of major lessons. And I, and I, and I think the lesson here is not just for migraines, but it's probably for lots of conditions in which, uh, patients self-reported, uh, symptoms, uh, determine treatment and then obviously impact outcome over a long period of time. So what, what, in your estimation, what, what, what's the reason that people are grossly underreporting their, their pain, their headaches, the frequency, the intense, intensity of it, all those associated symptoms? I mean, what, do you have a sense of that or has any of the research, uh, you've done given you some answers to that? Um, my most honest answer is, is I don't fully know. And there's a lot of research from others on this. Um, Included in unpacking that would be things like most people uh, are wired not to remember unpleasant events. We're all wired to remember life-threatening events, but not merely unpleasant events. And so when somebody like Sally would say she only had three migraines, what she meant was she only had three headaches that were so severe that she couldn't get out of bed without throwing up and had to stay home all day. Hmm. Uh, so that, those were the only ones she counted. And if those were the only ones she counted, then she was never going to get the appropriate, uh, preventative treatment. So that's one issue. Uh, second issue is I noted that migraine is somewhat gendered and, uh, it's differentially diagnosed in, uh, women who uh, may be in high stress lives. They may be very successful executives or attorneys like Sally or in other, or they're balancing work and family. They're doing just really challenging and amazing things. And they self-report to me that they really don't want to acknowledge to their employer that this is a serious issue for them. They don't want to be wearing sunglasses at work. They don't want to be turning out the lights in the office. And so they, while all of those things would be fine, they simply don't want attention called to themselves. They don't want in any way to appear to have any weakness relative to their other colleagues. And so that can lead to, Underreporting and underdiagnosis. So there, there's a variety of, of reasons. Uh, last but not least, um, as you pointed out early on, Zev, the total spend on migraine management 
is not dissimilar to the total spend on diabetes. But if you ask a, uh, if you ask an HR health manager, what do you want to cut your expenses on? They're almost certain to mention diabetes before they mention headaches. And part of the reason for that is that, uh, Anything that's diabetes-related will get coded as diabetes, whereas anything that's migraine-related is unlikely to get coded as migraines. You give the example of somebody going to the emergency room and saying, my head feels like it's about to explode. So they do a, uh, so they might do, uh, a, a brain scan to rule out, uh, an arachnoid mm-hmm. hemorrhage, uh, subarachnoid. Uh, that they're never going to code that as brain scan right. from migraine. Right. <laughs> right. It's going to be rule right. out stroke, rule out hemorrhage, rule right. out something else. Uh, so those, those expenses, unless you're very thoughtful about it as you have been, don't get coded as part of the expense of managing headache as a chronic disease. So we underestimate what we spend on it, and that means the urgency of solving this problem has been less. Having said all that, uh, migraine research at the moment in the pharmaceutical industry is one of the hottest topics in, in pharmaceuticals. There's half a dozen uh, really groundbreaking new drugs coming out uh, within the next 12 months, and because pharma companies have recognized that it's tens of millions of people and therefore billions of dollars in therapeutic opportunities that have been overlooked until now. So, so George, I think the, the points you're making in terms of not only is it underreporting at the individual patient level, but uh, at the population health level, we are almost certainly under-recognizing it. I, I think you're, that's a really great point you're making in terms of, of how things are reported in the ED and, and in the hospital and then how it makes its way, its way to the employer costs. So let me just... Um, you know, I, I, I just want to, I just want to insert here before we, I'm going to ask, I'm going to, I'm still going to unpack this issue of how you got to just the simple intervention. Cause it, to me, is just so ingenious. Um, I mean, it, it is a lesson in simplicity. If, if we were going to just talk about simplicity, this would be a great example of it. But I, I just want to, you know, for the sake of folks who still are not familiar with this, this app. So you, I've downloaded the app. I'm a migraine sufferer. Um, I have a migraine. Um, and then what do I do? How does the app work? So in my case, I would just say, Siri, open Migraine X. The app would pop open. Uh, it would ask, do you want to record a headache? I would hit a green button, yes. Uh, it would then ask me on a little sliding scale how severe my pain was from 0 to 10. Uh, we have it on a decile scale, both because that's kind of standard in the American uh, Academy of Neurology, but also because it enables us to tell when people are getting better. The difference between a headache which is a 3 and a headache which is an 8 is the difference between whether you can work or be at your child's birthday party or whether you're in a dark room. And so... 
it's not simply the reduction in the number of headaches, but also the reduction in pain. Uh, there's uh, some little touch points on the same screen so that you can note nausea, vomiting, uh, photosensitivity, things for which your doctor could help you uh, manage those secondary but critical symptoms. Uh, and then it goes to the next screen and you're simply asked which of these medications which have been prescribed for you are you taking, if any, to deal with this headache right now? And you simply note which one. And that's it. Each one of those screens took about five seconds, so that's a 15-second thing. I will say that is version 12 of this particular user interface. We had much more complicated things. We had things that provided much more information. Both the doctors and the patients kept saying, can you make this simpler? And so we got it down to sort of three touches in 15 seconds. And that's when the user uh, uptake really took off. Uh, as Sally told me, I'm not a techie. I don't really like working with smartphones or computers, but this doesn't take me much time to do. And it allows me to add as much information as I want in the notes section for myself, but it doesn't require that I do so. And so I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, well organized. I don't think that's exactly the word she used, but well organized. And, uh, so I like to keep track of this stuff and I'll go back after the headache and add my notes that I can refer to when I'm meeting with Dr. Bodner. And that's been very helpful for both of us. Um, so really this is just asking consumers and providers, what do they not what are all the things that they might want? But what are the things that they really need? So it it's based on the Mick Jagger principle. Mm-hmm. Can't always get what you want, but you get what you need. Mm. And that's all they need to be able to change their care. Mm-hmm. So so George, this so I I go through my month, my weeks or and I I when I get the headaches, I click on uh and and spend twelve to fifteen seconds answering it. It automatically records all this. Then how does the how is the information uh, visually or otherwise conveyed to so when I go see my neurologist or my primary care doctor? So the information the information at your level as a consumer user, mm-hmm. there is a uh, there's a calendar function that can just show you visually how many headaches you recorded that month. There is a uh, there's a um, PDF that can summarize all the information, the barometric pressure, the light intensity, all that stuff, if you want to go back and deal with that. Uh, we're now creating a, a number of different dashboards to help people follow that information over time so they can... It turns out to be really helpful for people to see that they're getting mm-hmm. better. Uh, that may... <laughs> That may not sound surprising. It was surprising to me how emotionally impactful mm-hmm. it is for patients to see that they're getting better after years of not getting better. Uh, and 
then a summary is simply delivered once a month to the physician-facing electronic medical record. It's kind of boring to talk about how we do that, but I'll just say there's 22,000 lines of code (laughs) that allow us to take that simple record and integrate it seamlessly into the EMR. So when the doctor pulls up Sally, he finds her summary data and can do something useful for her mm-hmm. with it. So, so you have a, a, a really small number of questions uh, or data points that are recorded um, and that's given to the physician. And as a result, they're able to really understand uh, how severe the condition is and appropriately treat it. And so you, you kind of break the cycle of, you know, misunderstanding the severity and mistreating or grossly undertreating in many cases. So George, this is what sort of boggles me about this. I mean, we've been treating migraine headaches forever and there are just brilliant, brilliant people who have been working on this forever. How is it that you and your team just you know, came up with really this sort of root cause issue, which was, hey, um, you actually, you know, it's being underreported and you need some automated way to really figure out how bad it is so that you could actually treat it right. And instead of taking years, if, if you, you ever get it right, you can, you can actually start to really get the appropriate treatment and reduce the condition severity in a matter of, you know, weeks rather than, you know, months or years. And so, uh, you know, or, or never for that matter. So what, what was it about? I mean, how did you figure this out? I mean, cause you know, again, in my experience, most of the time we take a chronic condition like this, we would, we would build a building, we would, you know, hire researchers, we would set up care pathways. I mean, you did none of that. You just said, you know, I think the problem is this, that you actually don't know how severe it is. I mean, how, how did you figure that out? Um, uh- Serendipity and combined with trial and error. So there are, there are a number of other, uh, digital headache diaries out there. Most of them are too complicated. And so they take minutes to put in the information. They're hard to read. They're hard to deal with. And I'm not saying they're not well designed. Uh, they're just not very sticky because it's too hard. And so what we learned from the patients, because we were in constant discussion with the leading neurologists in the country and with hundreds of patients. And both of them were urging us to come up with something simpler. And so once you have that as your mantra, then you, you keep working on the UI until it's about as simple as it can get. And that's what gives you the 80% stickiness, which enables you to help the vast majority of the users. The stuff that we're still working on, we, we own a lot of patents, which are being cheerfully violated by other people on uh, doing the uh, sensor-based analysis. And we've been able to find out some really interesting things that we're about to publish around uh, role of weather in headaches or role of... Uh, photosensitivity and headaches. And as we're getting bigger and bigger databases, we can start to relate certain symptom typologies, the phenotype of your headache, to 
differential sensitivity to drugs. It turns out not all drugs work for all types of headaches. And so we can start to say this, this pattern of headache um, typology uh, appears to respond better to this class of drugs than the one over here. And that that's a work in progress. I think that's going to be very interesting. But one thing that I'm really fascinated by right now as we've gotten a year's worth of um, of longitudinal data from patients from you know thousands of people um, is starting to understand something that at first seemed completely mysterious to me. Although one of my collaborators, Don Buse, also at Einstein, says, in fact, there's a big literature on this. And I don't know what the, there is a term for it, uh, which I don't, which is not familiar to chemists, but I almost think of it as a permanent placebo effect. That is, it turns out that just using uh, a tool like this, uh, even if your medication doesn't change, hmm. makes you better. Uh, and the what is known from studies by people much smarter than me is uh, that when a patient has had a prolonged period of perceived helplessness, that no matter what they do, they're not getting better, and you give them something that gives them some sense of efficacy in dealing with their disease, then uh, some of the comorbidities, the depression, the anxiety, the stress that go along with managing this chronic disease, diminish. And just diminishing those has a feedback effect that reduces the the stress-related triggers for headaches, so the actual number of headaches decrease, which then uh, reinforces for the patient that they're doing something good, and you can get into some degree of a positive feedback loop where they actually are getting better just by just by having some sense that they're mm. that they have some control. Uh, that to me is fascinating because the cost of supplying that improvement in care is right. zero. <laughs> there's no meds, there's no doctor treatments, there's no nothing. They're just taking a free app and, and keeping track of things. And that does account for a signif significant meaning statistically more than one sigma mm. improvement. Uh, they are statistically getting better just by using the app. And if that's a common phenomenon, the implications for healthcare utilization are really dramatic. That's, that is, uh, that's actually really, really neat. Um, two, two questions off of that. Um, the first is, I, I know you're still early on in some of these trials, uh, 
But do you have any, any numbers you can provide us with in terms of the efficacy of, uh, the use of the app when, uh, when, a, when it's being used by patients and physicians? Have you seen, you mentioned the quality of life increases by 30%, and I'm assuming that comes off of your trials as opposed to the general literature. That, that comes off of our specific, uh, patient population. And I think the, that was a study of about 4,000 headaches longitudinally over. It, and, and how big, how big, I mean, 30% seems like a dramatic increase. I mean, do you have any, any sort of thing to make it relative to anything else? I mean, that seems quite remarkable to me. Um, the, a standard neurological metric, which is used to, a, to measure the, Social disability that's associated with uh, a migraine uh, chronic disorder is something called a MIDAS score. It's the Migraine Disability Assessment Score. And so it's really pretty simple. It sums up the number of days that you had to miss work, the number of, of days of presenteeism where you were at work but really couldn't function effectively the number of days that you were unable to do life uh, management outside of the workplace. So cook your meals or take care of your home setting. Uh, and the number of days that you had to miss social interactions and social activities uh, because of your because of your chronic disease, and that gets normalized to a scale of of sort of one to a hundred. So you can sum those things up, and what we see is that over, for that group of thousands of headaches over that extended period of time, those each of those numbers trends down over time, uh, and. So that's, that's what we're really measuring is the, is the total population effect, uh, of the decrease in MIDA score from when people first start using the app to when they're nine months in. Uh, for individuals, of course, it can be much more dramatic than that. For Sally, going from 19 headaches a month to one hmm. completely changes her life and her family's and her workplace environment. Uh, so the fact that you can get an extraordinary effect for one person is less interesting to me than that you get a, a very large population effect across the entire population. Because there's some people that are refractory, right? And there's... They are where they are. Maybe they've, maybe they've found partial relief, but they're not, mm -hmm. no matter what you do, they are kind of where they are. So you're seeing those people with a 90% decrease, and then you're seeing some with no decrease, but on average, across the entire population, there's a, there's an effect of more than a third. The distribution is Poissonian. It's not Gaussian. Uh, so that, there are a lot of people that experience right. a pretty large effect and then it drops off. Um, so, so that's, that's what we're learning from those ongoing studies. And as we do 
more studies in a workplace setting, then we can start to get uh, more detailed information about mm -hmm. uh, effects on work productivity, et cetera, um, that would be independent of the of the patient's self-reports. So, you know, I mentioned this to you, George, the other day. I was I was talking to a pulmonologist, and um, we were talking about the fact that you know people with COPD end up, uh, uh, particularly moderate or severe COPD, uh, end up in the in the emergency rooms and in hospitals, and um, we're trying to figure out some way to prevent that. And at first, you know, we were talking about devices, biometric devices, measuring uh, breathing at home with spirometers, et cetera. And, and he turned to me and he said, you know, uh, it's actually not that complicated. In fact, there's probably only three or four questions that I need to know from the patient that would trigger me to know that this patient is getting worse. Um, it's, it's actually much more helpful to have the answers to those simple questions than it would be to have all kinds of fancy biometric assays done at home. And when, when he said that, I immediately thought of the MigraNix app. And so it seems to me this approach that you and your colleagues have developed is something that could be applicable to other chronic conditions that have, uh, right, patient reports. And what, what kind of conditions are you, are you guys looking at? So COPD is an interesting one. IBS is one that we're actively working on. Uh, we're working on epilepsy. Um, where all of these things, there's not a simple way to, it, it's not like diabetes where there's A1C or, or serum glucose that you can follow in real time. All you can really follow is what the patient remembers. Mm -hmm. And so giving the patient a chance to, uh, input this in real time is, is valuable. Uh, I think it's probably, applicable to at least dozens of diseases, for example, to take a, a less common but incredibly debilitating one, uh, sickle cell anemia. The best indicator of whether you need immediate um, intervention is the, is the, the, uh, change in pain level over time. Hmm. And so if patients are reporting more and more severe pain, they are heading towards a really serious crisis that you would like to intervene. And so if they could just report that on a daily basis, uh, you could get interventions that would um, help avoid the most serious crises for those for those patients who have a genetic lifetime illness and can make a tremendous difference, not only in longevity, but quality of life. So there, I, I will tell you, Zeb, you know, as a physician, every, pretty much everybody that I've talked to within the healthcare system has their own favorite chronic disease that they would like me to write an app for yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and so which ones we're going to do first will depend a little bit on where there is, where are there the best opportunities to have the largest healthcare impacts? Mm -hmm. And that can be some linear combination of the number of people, the severity of their disease, and how much changing 
the diagnostic criterion could help alleviate that disease burden. So it's some combination of those things that will help us figure out which ones to do next. The last and most critical part of this, uh, which I've been extraordinarily blessed in, in taking this from an idea to standard of care, uh, with full deployment, you have to have a physician champion who absolutely believes that this is what his or her patients have needed and is willing to do the extra work and go the extra mile and do all the extra things to work with their patients to help develop the uh, workflow that will make this possible for them to use it, for their patients to use it, and for other physicians to use it. So there has to be a physician champion. And it makes all the difference in the world to have a healthcare system like Carolina's Healthcare, which says, this is a big deal for us. We will invest alongside a small private company to figure out how to make this um, viable for the patients that we both want to serve. Because I could write the code to integrate into the EMR, uh, but unless you had a system that wanted to integrate it, it wouldn't matter what code you wrote. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you also have to have a, you also have to have a, system like Carolina's, which has the scope and the scale to take on a project uh, that could be transformative and see it through. Absolutely. Uh, and so I've been, I've been, you know, just extraordinarily impressed mm-hmm. with colleagues here who've, who've embraced this mm-hmm. and, and been excited about yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, 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 th- I agree with you. In terms of having a system to support an innovation like this at Carolinas, um, you know, though, once you have you, you know, you're talking about these physician champions who, who, you know, create the protocol. But once it's created, it seems to me that this actually, uh, really optimizes and leverages the physician and the visit. Uh, it, it seems to me this would, would be a time saver and, and, a, and an efficiency maker as opposed to creating more work for physicians who use this. Yeah, it's only the short-term investment for them. Yeah. In the long term, everybody's better off. Yeah. But in the short term, when you're first trying to do it, I need a physician to sit with me and say, here's what I need the screens to look mm-hmm. like. I need a physician who's going to sit down with their patients and say, we're trying out a new technology. Uh, it might help me help you if you were willing to try mm-hmm. this. Uh, and... And so for that trial period, it's simply going to require extra time. I don't know any physicians who have extra time. And so it requires an additional level of dedication on that champion's part to say, I'm sufficiently excited about this for my patients and for my own practice that I want to invest in Mm -hmm. this thing. And it's often those physicians who really care about research who are willing to make that extra investment. Now, once it's created for a condition, though, and it's 
sort of ready to go and plug and play. If I'm a patient, I download this and clearly there's some benefit just by, you know, from my using it. But how does my provider access it? Do they have to belong to a system like Carolina's that um, is going to pay for it or belong to an employer that's going to who who pays for this so that the doctors can actually be given the summaries at the end of the month? Yeah, at the end of the day, uh, it's a payer centric model. Um, right now, we're actually not. We have hundreds and hundreds of people who are using this in a uh, demonstrator fashion so that their provider hasn't signed on, their system hasn't signed on, and they're just walking around with the data in their pocket. And that's still more valuable to them than nothing. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily have to charge very much were it not for the uh, critical need that the physicians self-report of having EMR integration for workflow. Because that, that makes a huge difference in how effectively they can do this. And that does cost something to implement. So that, that's really what the, what the systems are ultimately paying for is that, is that full integration. Because mm -hmm. we can do it much cheaper than a system could do it themselves. Um, so that's, that's a, a part of the, a, a part of what they get. There is a, uh, there's another feature that I'll, I won't go into, but I'll simply say that, um, there are new billing codes that have been developed to allow, um, a physician to get reimbursed for reviewing these data. And that, uh, you know, it's not, it feels appropriate to me that there can be a very modest charge to have a physician actually review your data and come up with better care. Uh, in the past, there simply wasn't a mechanism to do that. Now there is, and that's reduced the barriers for even individual practices adopting something like this because they have a means to pay for it. Um, so ultimately, it's, it's a set of third-party payers because what we've found in the, in the longitudinal study that we did was that on average, the savings were in excess of $1,500 for every person using the app. Uh, some patients saved none. Some patients saved thousands, but the average savings was about fifteen hundred. So the the return on the um, on the modest charge that the company has to charge to stay in business, the return to the payer is about tenfold. So payers haven't really been unhappy with this. So, I mean, it, it, it seems like it's clearly a, a win all around. Clearly the, the patient wins, uh, as you pointed out, uh, in terms of quality of life and symptom reduction. Uh, the payer is, as you're pointing out, really wins uh, in terms of reducing the costs of care through better treatment. 
employers win as a result of having employees that also have reduced costs, but also are more present uh, in their work. Uh, right. And um, I, I, you know, and, and I think from a provider perspective, to be able to have this tool to really be able to diagnose the severity of your patient's condition uh, and through these sort of automated, uh, you know, uh, patient reported data, generated health data, uh, you know, applications is a huge win, uh, I think, in terms of getting improved outcomes for your patients. And, um, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, especially as as providers now are going to be uh, looked at in terms of their outcomes of care and their overall costs of care, it seems like this would be a win for providers. Well, it's a win for, I think, I think, Zev, it's a win for providers at two levels. One, yes, it does help them document the outcomes, which increasingly are important for getting the full reimbursement. But the physicians I know and mm. We both know hundreds and hundreds of them really went into this because they wanted to help patients. Absolutely. And so having tools that take less of your time to provide you a better chance to improve your patient's health, the doctors love this mm-hmm. because it, it, it helps them do what they went into medicine for. And so that's been, I think, one of the nicest things is to see how quickly the community embraced, the physician community embraced this approach. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It's, it's, um, the issue of migraines is such a frustrating one. You talked about learned helplessness for patients suffering from migraines. I think the same is true for physicians trying to help patients who suffer. From migraines, it it's uh, so so frustrating, and we saw this in you know uh, in our organization and in other organizations where you know it's just uh, despite the best uh, knowledge of the patient and the best knowledge of treatment, um, still was a very very tough cycle to break. So um, I, I can understand why uh, providers uh, are uh, are really loving this. So, George, I, I think we should, you know, bring it to a close. I promised you I'd try to keep it uh, close to an hour. I've uh, gone a little bit over here. Perfect. But let me let me ask you a couple of final questions. Um, I, I think the – well, first, I'll make it two questions. First is, are there um, any sort of final key takeaways, calls to action you would have for the, uh, the folks who are, are listening to this uh, podcast? Um, so first of all, I I think it's extraordinary that, that you've, uh, created this opportunity, Zev. And so I'm thankful for that on behalf of myself and anyone else who would listen. Uh, I think that we're at a moment. So it's been very generous of you to talk about this, this specific application. And I think we're at a moment where this is sort of the tip of the iceberg, where we're, we're all carrying around diagnostic supercomputers in our pockets and more and more and more things are going to take advantage of the ubiquity of that, um, of that capability. Uh, and so I think we're going to see some pretty dramatic changes across many features of 
health restoration uh, that can take advantage of patients becoming full partners in uh, creating their own diagnoses and uh, and follow-ups by giving providers actionable information that they simply haven't been equipped to do in the past. So I think that's an exciting thing. And, then, you know, with a huge fraction of healthcare spend going into not dramatically effective management of chronic disease, any, um, any improvement that technologies like this, and there will be many technologies like this, uh, can provide in bending that cost curve. Technology historically has bent the cost curve, but mostly up, not down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is a technology that consumers already own. They've already paid for it themselves. Since the app in general is free, uh, the only thing that it can likely do is, is bend the cost curve down, not up. And that's... Uh, that I think is exciting for those who follow your um, podcasts with an interest in seeing how innovation can positively impact medicine going forward. So that's the, that's the thing that I'm most excited about. And at the end of the day, it, it really is about people like Sally and her daughter. Hmm. Right. That that's the whole reason that any of us do this kind of stuff is for that kind of human impact. So, so George, let me let me uh, I was going to ask you a second question, but I'm going to take the prerogative of actually just saying something. So, first of all, I, I, I think the point you make and you alluded you alluded to this earlier, the data that's being collected and correlated with patient symptoms is is, I think, going to really transform, uh, you know, outcomes research here, just the, the staggering, uh, amount of data you're able to collect, uh, very, very quickly over a large span of patients and, and providers. I, I just think it's huge. And then you couple that with machine learning technology. Uh, so to me, it's just, it's mind blowing what we're going to be able to do in terms of advancing, uh, the ability to treat people with migraines and these other conditions that, that you touched upon and chronic disease management. So I, I just, uh, we didn't have a lot of time to go into that part of it, but I, I think that's, that's huge as well. And, and, um, really also an inflection in this moment in time. But I, I, I more importantly, I really want to end on this that, um, and I, I just want to say, I, I have tremendous, I mean, profound respect for you. Um, uh, you know, you and I work together. Uh, we've been talking about this on and off for, for quite a few months, but, um, I, I just, you know, I have to say, I, I, um, I really think of you as one of the most innovative and in some ways divergent thinkers I, I've ever encountered. You, your mind is just so amazingly facile, but even, even more importantly, and I really, really mean this, your, your heart is so intensely anchored in helping people. I've, I've really never seen quite a combination of a brilliant mind and a brilliant heart. And so I just, I just, had to say that to you. I, I want to say it publicly. I really believe that. I think about you a lot. And, um, 
if there are a few folks out there that I would love to emulate, uh, you're definitely one of them. So I just want to thank you for, for taking the time to, you know, to be on this podcast, to have this conversation. And, um, I'm, I'm glad we were able to record it and share it with the listeners and, um, and, uh, and folks to, to the folks out there listening, um, you know, uh, you are doing the hard work each and every day of caring for patients. And, um, you know, as George and I were talking about it, it is not always easy to do that. And there's a lot of challenge and frustration. So I just want to take my hat off to you because you're, you're also the heroes out there in the front line, as George said before. So, uh, anyway, just wishing you all a happy and healthy new year. We're still in January and, uh, until the next next episode of creating new healthcare, please be well. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, George.